In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning. Beautiful to see you all here this morning. As many of you know, Dean Nathan and I got back from a pilgrimage to the Holy Land just 11 days, 11 days ago. Quite the whirlwind tour from Galilee and Nazareth up in the north where Jesus grew up down to the south to the Jordan Valley, and then in the middle to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, Via Dolorosa, Golgotha, Golgotha, the Holy Sepulchre. It was my first time there, and it was a trip of a lifetime, and I'm deeply grateful to Dean Nathan and to all of you for making it possible for me to go. I went there expecting to be moved by that feeling you get when you realize, wow, Jesus was here. Jesus was right here. And occasionally, I was. One day, we visited the pools of Bethesda, where Jesus healed the man who had been waiting around to be healed for 38 years. And as I approached that spot, I found this prayer for healing just welling up inside me that surprised me with its force. That kind of thing happens. Other places, though, felt just kind of like ancient Disneylands, you know? Just lines of people queuing up to catch a glimpse of this or that piece of old rock. While on the street, vendors wave cheap trinkets and rosaries made in China. Just when cynicism, you know, feels like it's about to win the day, though, you find yourself in this ancient stone sanctuary and you watch as some elderly nun from Armenia or Nigeria or Argentina kneels down on a cold stone floor and kisses the place that Jesus was said to have walked and you feel completely humbled by it. I learned not to try to reconcile those two elements, the cheap commercialism on the one hand and the deep reverence and piety on the other. They have existed in that place interdependently for centuries, and neither side was waiting around for my approval. There was another kind of culture clash, though, that I had a harder time reconciling, and that was my own sense of right and wrong. For example, we spent a very moving couple of hours touring a Roman Catholic orphanage in Bethlehem. Pregnant Arab women, many as young as 12 or 13, often pregnant by the rape of a relative, come there in the middle of the night to give birth and to leave before they're missed by their families. If the crime of their pregnancy is discovered, they may die by honor killing. If they're unable to hide the fact that they're not a virgin, they'll never marry. The children that are forced to abandon are loved and cared for by these Roman Catholic sisters until they turn six, when they're sent away to foster homes and become wards of the state. They never receive identity papers. They're never given a family name. For the rest of their lives, they can never cross a checkpoint 
or travel beyond the Palestinian territories. They are permanent second-class citizens. <clears throat> As we listen to this beautiful sister describe the plight of these children and their mothers, I got more and more offended, you know? I thought of the 22-year-old woman in Iran, Masa Amini, who died while in custody of the morality police for failing to cover her hair. I thought of the price that women and children have paid for centuries around the world for these patriarchal purity codes. This feeling of offense rose in me like a kind of righteous anger and that's when I realized I suddenly felt at home in the Holy Land. Because if there's anything that everyone in that place has in common, it's a sense of righteous anger towards some other group. Everywhere we went, righteous anger was on display as a badge of honor, whether it was on the Temple Mount or at the Holy Sepulchre, on the streets of Bethlehem or Jerusalem, Everyone was by necessity hypervigilant to the possibility of giving offense and of being offended. The Israelis with their machine guns and separation wars offend the Palestinian sense of dignity and human rights on a daily basis. The Palestinians offend the Israelis sense of security. In the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, every few years a brawl breaks out among the Armenians and the Greeks and the Franciscans over some perceived slight or insult. Everywhere you go in the old city, extremely precise rules and timetables have to be followed just to keep people from shooting each other. And we Westerners, with our bare shoulders and our uncovered heads, our loose morals and our slouchy devotion blithely wander around snapping pictures and offending everybody. <laughs> you know, it wasn't so different, of course, in Jesus' time. The purity codes of the temple were strictly enforced, which meant any violation of the rules could bring a world of hurt down on you. The Pharisees were offending the Sadducees who were offending the Zealots who were offending the Essenes and everyone was deeply offended by the lepers and the Samaritans and the tax collectors and the impure women and of course the Romans. So it's all the more amazing to me when I read the Gospels that Jesus was so perfectly comfortable being so offensive in our gospel story this morning, we hear yet another story about how Jesus cheerfully offended just about everyone by inviting himself to dinner at the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Luke's gospel says, everyone who saw it began to grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. You can't eat with sinners, Jesus. What are you doing? Well, what he was doing, of course, was teaching the world about a different kind of love, an unconditional love. But it's important to note that Jesus was not advocating some kind of moral relativism here. It's not that he approved of extortion, which was what the tax collectors were famous for. 
He was clearly not a fan of collaborating with the murderous Romans. It's just that Jesus had discovered this fantastic secret, which is that love is so much bigger than approval. That relationships begin in love, not approval. That it's entirely possible to love someone that you disapprove of. That's, of course, what unconditional love is. In the case of Zacchaeus, this love triggers a profound conversion of life. Zacchaeus responds to Jesus' gesture of love by promising to give half of his possessions away to the poor and to return the money he's extorted times four. This is how Jesus converts the world to the cause of love. Not by condemning sinners with long lectures and endless finger-pointing, not by morality police and etiquette enforcers, but by grounding every relationship in love, which is not the same thing as approval. It's a simple thing, and yet, you know what? I forget it all the time. Out of loyalty to the women of the Muslim world, I would much rather sit in judgment than deepen a relationship. I would rather indulge my righteous judgment of the Israelis for their brutal Jim Crow policies than seek a relationship that explores our deeper commonalities of human experience. Because the truth is that beneath my offense, there's simply befuddlement, really. Sometimes I just don't understand people who are different from me. And I don't like that. I want to pretend that I do understand. The problem is they're sexists, they're bigots, they're imperialists. Whatever label I can find that keeps me safely in the world of us and them. But the problem is, and this is a huge problem, the problem is I've looked into their eyes. I've seen their children playing in the streets. I've watched them worship their God. The problem is that they're beautiful. All of them. And that's terribly confusing. I want to throw a judgmental label on them just to cover up the fact that I'm completely at a loss with all of this beauty on the one hand and all of this judgment on the other. So much easier to simply be offended, to condemn them rather than understand them. Because I keep forgetting, it's so simple, but I keep forgetting, love is not the same thing as approval. We are under no obligation to approve our, energy, our enemies, but we are called to love them. This month, uh, the Trinity Book Club is reading the novel Jack by Marilyn Robinson. And by the way, um, we were going to have a discussion of the, of the novel Jack today after church, but because we're celebrating Katie Bronson's retirement, we're, we've moved that up to next week. So come next week for a conversation on this gorgeous book by Marilyn Robinson, probably my favorite author. It's the story of this charming 
shiftless, thieving, chronically homeless, alcoholic white man named Jack who falls in love with a lovely, nearly angelic, African-American English teacher named Della. The story takes place in the 1950s in the Jim Crow South. So needless to say, their relationship is a scandal to everyone they know. And it's especially ruinous to Della, who as a school teacher is expected to uphold a standard of decency which a love affair with a white man and a self-described bum definitely threatens. And it turns out that Jack himself can't understand why Della loves him. He keeps reminding her that he's no good. He's a drinker. He's a thief. He hurts people. And throughout the book, we also are wondering the same thing. Why, Della, are you mixing up with this guy? And then finally, Della finds the words to explain her love. She says, once in a lifetime, maybe, you look at a stranger and you see a soul, a glorious presence out of place in the world. And if you love God, every choice is made for you then. There's no turning away. You've seen the mystery You've seen what life is about, what it's for. And a soul has no earthly qualities, no history about the things of the world, no guilt or injury or failure, no more than a flame would have. There's nothing to be said about it except that it is a holy human soul. And it is a miracle when you recognize it. And since it's your soul I've seen, I know better than to think about you the way people do when they judge. The Lord says, judge not, because when he looks at people, he just sees souls. That's all. That, I believe, is the realm we're all being invited into, this realm in which we see only souls prior to their earthly qualities, prior to our judgments, prior to guilt or injury or failure, they're simply souls. It's how a prison chaplain sees his charges beneath the crimes to the soul inside. It's how Corey Ten Boom saw the Jews and the disabled people whom her family sheltered during the Holocaust. That's how Jesus saw Zacchaeus. That's how Jesus sees us, which is why, of course, our hearts leap in communion with him. And by the mercy of God, it's how each of us can see one another and every person on this earth simply as souls lit by the Spirit of God. And by those means, we are set free to love the gorgeous world that we live in. May it be so. Amen.